This special edition of Davos Confidential gets started right after this message. Today's episode is presented by Cisco, the worldwide leader in technology and power behind our internet for the last 35 years. Leveraging technology for good, their people are united behind one purpose, to power an inclusive future for all. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Some of this trade, some of this economic interaction with authoritarian regimes is undermining our security. And then we have to choose security instead of vulnerability and over-reliance on authoritarian regimes. Welcome to another special edition of Davos Confidential, coming to you today from the Media Village at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. I'm Sarah Wheaton, Politico's chief policy correspondent and the new author of Politico's EU Influence Newsletter. And that was the voice of Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO. Though he's usually known for his stoicism, an ice fjord, as one colleague put it, Stoltenberg was fiery by comparison about the lessons the world should have learned from Russian President Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine. I think we all have learned a lesson. Uh, that, that, of course, and you and I, we have actually been active in Norwegian politics, arguing heavily and strongly in favor of free trade agreements, uh, integration with the European Union, globalization of the economy, and more global trade, a more global economy. Free trade has brought a lot of prosperity and wealth to all of us. But the problem is that it has a price. He spoke in the main conference hall on Tuesday right after Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. She made the case to the global community that the European Union is doing its part to support Ukraine. For the first time in history, the European Union is providing military aid to a country under attack. We are mobilizing our full economic power. Our sanctions and the self-sanctionings of companies themselves are draining Russia's economy and thus draining the Kremlin's war machine. After the speech, von der Leyen spoke exclusively to Politico's Suzanne Lynch. You'll hear what the commission chief had to say about the chances for sealing a deal on the latest package of EU sanctions against Russia. So you don't expect agreement as such at the summit on this? That's um, not the forum. I, I do not expect it. I do not want to raise false expectations here. That's coming up in just a minute with our podcast panel. Also in this episode, you'll hear from former Finnish Prime Minister Alexander Stubb about Russia's impact on the West and his country's bid to join NATO. And we'll check in with business leader and author Bill Browder about his new book, Freezing Order, a true story of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. Then we'll bring you two economic powerhouses, 
David Rubenstein, the billionaire co-founder of the Carlyle Group, will talk about inflation and his worries about oncoming recessions. And Karen Camille Tambor, an exec at Bridgewater Associates, one of the world's largest hedge funds. In other words, you're in for another great episode. So to get things started, let's bring in our podcast panel. Okay, we are here for day two of, well, day two and a half, really, of Davos. It's Tuesday evening. We are here in the Congress Center in a room. I'm here with Suzanne Lynch, author of Brussels Playbook and co-author of Davos Playbook. Hello. Here with Ryan Heath, director, editorial director for Global Growth, Growth. and the author of the... Global Insider. Yes, and the co-author of Davos Playbook. I'm miraculously dry given the pouring rain that is happening outside right now. I should not have worn a light suit today. We won't ask Ryan about his white shoes, but... (laughs) <laughs> and then we're also here. We're also here with Jamil Anderlini, who's the editor in chief of Politico Europe. Hi. <laughs> Why are you feeling so weary? You have been talking to money men all day. Yeah. So I started this morning. I think I oh man, seven thirty this morning with Masters of the Universe of the Financial. I won't say which news organization, uh, which financial institution, because I promised it was off the record. But it was fascinating, really, actually, in all seriousness. Um, they're really worried about inflation. They're really worried, actually, about recession. So there is, uh, there is some serious, I think, economic pain coming to the world from what, from what you hear in these conversations. And went from there straight to another master of the universe in the financial world. Uh, again, same message. It was really interesting. They're looking ahead three to six months, and they, they are really, really concerned. As we were saying before, I mean, this is as much a financial economic zone here as political. I sat down and had a coffee with someone there who has been here for 10 years. And he kind of pushed back on the suggestion that we've all been saying and, and watching that, you know, there are not many big political heavy hitters here. You know, we've just got Schultz, one G20. He made the point to me, look, this is about meeting CEOs. And as he put it, he said, my dance card is full. And he said, it, this is why it's worth me coming. Um, I get one-on-one time, and it's a hugely efficient work, uh, use of my time. So, you know, I suppose it, it was a reminder that deals are still getting done. Those bilateral conversations are still happening in those rooms, breakout rooms uh, beside the centre. So I think there is still that appetite for people to come here for that reason, even though we don't have the razzmatazz of the big political leaders here. But one key political leader who we pay a lot of attention to was here today. Suzanne, you watched her speech yeah, I grabbed a few minutes, actually, with the European Commission president. I kind of walked and talked, um, surrounded by her her people, and uh, did a quick interview with her. She broke some news. She ruled out a deal on the, on the EU six sanctions package being reached at next week's EU summit. There's now uh, reports that Viktor Orban has said that he doesn't want to discuss this at the summit next week. What kind of timetable do you think? I think it is uh, not an appropriate topic uh, to be solved on the... Um, European Council because it's very technical what we're discussing. So we're speaking about landlocked uh, countries that need alternative supply via pipelines. So you have to uh, speak about the investment in the pipelines to uh, increase the supply. And we're talking about refineries that have to be updated and investment in renewable energy. There is a political element that might be discussed. This is how much are the other 26 willing to uh, concede as investment to uh, Hungary. But the first and foremost difficulties are the technical ones we are discussing right now. So you don't expect agreement as such at the summit on this, this um, the forum? I, I do not expect it. I do not want to raise false expectations here. Okay. 
I mean, this is a big deal. The EU has been trying to get it together, trying to agree a sixth round of sanctions for weeks now. And they haven't been able to get it over the line uh, because of Viktor Orban. She also said she's prepared to talk to Orban in the next few days. She said she's got his phone number. They may talk. But she really played down the expectations of an imminent deal there. So that is a concern now for the EU. Will you be having any contact, do you think, with Viktor Orban over the next few days? I know you spoke to him before. Well, I visited him in Budapest to understand also what uh, the implications are, and it is objectively uh, um, a strong and difficult technical problem. Also, of course, there's always politics in it, but it is primarily a technical problem. Um, And, of course, um, we are in constant touch with the two cabinets uh, because it's, as I said, very technical what has to go forward. Um, if necessary, I'm always uh, in touch with him via telephone. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Camille. Well, I'm going to vent about the lack of creativity about some of the last bits of feedback that we've been receiving here. So uh, a sixth sanction package is possible tomorrow if people use the capacity of their brain and say we're going to do a bilateral agreement between the 26 countries that do want to do a deal. So shame on political leaders for not having the creativity to do that if that's what they really want to achieve. And one very concrete outcome that is a non-outcome, a missed opportunity from this because of the lack of political leaders here is to do with food security, which is what I've been majoring on today. And to a person, the 23 people that I was running a lunch with said they thought it was just a massive problem that the WEF hadn't been able to develop some kind of action plan or bring people together into a room for an agreement on what we all know is a looming famine as a result of Russia and Ukraine and other fragility in our food system. It's very clear that these problems are coming down the line in three to six months. So it's the same time frame as these economists and bankers have been thinking about. And that is really where the WEF could have inserted itself and made a big difference. And instead, we're all stuck wondering whether David Beasley at the World Food Programme will get enough money to put a Band-Aid on the problem. And we had another, could call him a political leader, a sort of political military leader. We had Jens Stoltenberg speaking today. His tone was a bit, was a bit different than usual. Yeah, I mean, Stoltenberg delivered one of the keynote speeches today and he really called out the business community for um, having close economic ties with Russia and China. Now, as we've already mentioned on this podcast, there is a distinct lack of representation of representatives from Russia and China. But nonetheless, he really kind of called them out saying freedom is more important than free trade. Freedom is more important than free trade. The protection of values is more important than profit. However, I do think it's interesting. I mean, this is a military guy. He's heading up NATO. And if you were to talk to a Ukrainian representative, they would probably say, OK, the sanctions and economic side of things is one part, but they want NATO to be doing more in terms of military. So, you know, is he kind of blaming uh, the other side of the tracks, if you like, and not, and not um, looking after his own home base? But, I mean, as, as we were pointing out, he is due. It's been delayed, but he's been lined up for a, a central bank uh, job in his home country of Norway. So uh, he still has that eye on the economic issues. So, we, as we said, many Russians and Chinese people are not here. But uh, there are other people who, under certain circumstances, might be seen as pariahs who are still walking around the street. Jamil, is that adding to some of your sense of, of fatigue today, is some of your run-ins? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say run-ins, but I've noticed uh, Hun Sen, the former uh, Khmer Rouge fighter turned uh, longtime prime minister of Cambodia, incredibly autocratic, 
Prime Minister of Cambodia, I have to say. Uh, I noticed and uh, in close proximity w- with a man known as the Crocodile, uh, Emerson Manangagwa, the president of the Republic of Zimbabwe, is here. Um, uh, not just here, but participating in panels, um, which I may or may not have been close to at some point. I mean, this is going to be an issue for WEF, right? Because they have decided to take a very, very strong line against Russia. And, you know, that opens a bit of a Pandora box. If you start, sorry to use the word cancelling, as some people would see it, some representatives, some countries, where do you draw the line? You know, we were writing today in Playbook about the MBS house and that's serving ice cream, for example, out in the promenade. So, I mean, I think, you know, there are going to be questions about who makes those decisions, why, and whether they should be tougher on autocratic regimes. And one of the things that uh, the WEF has always prided itself on is not getting involved in the topics of the day. And so there was always some criticism of, you know, there's all these autocrats and, and you know, maybe they'll invite the North Koreans next. Maybe they have. Actually, I think they have invited the North Koreans. They just haven't shown up yet. But the point is that there was this criticism, but they could say, well, we're equal opportunity. Any autocrat is welcome. And now they've, they've chosen and they've taken a side. And that, I think, could be very problematic. As you say, that could set a precedent. And, you know, there's going to be pressure on this. The place. politics was a factor, but actually they'd be breaking sanctions if the Russians were here this year. So they'd be in court, not only in the U.S., but potentially with the Swiss, who, to everyone's surprise, actually joined in on the sanctions. So the question is, is the sanctions the line? Is it the invasion mm-hmm. that's the line? Is it the murdering of journalists? That's the line. WEF won't be able to avoid those social political debates anymore. So tomorrow, nothing's really standing out for us as far as political leaders, but there are some program highlights, no? Yeah, so uh, I'm supposed to go to lunch with John Kerry, Will I Am, Yo-Yo Ma, uh, Kristalina Georgieva, and Mark Benioff. Um, and tomorrow is the real party, party, party time. Uh, although... Gwen Stefani's pulled out. Is that right, Ryan? Yeah. So you just listed five celebrities that just come here every year and, you know, good on them for their efforts. But I think it's time that the WEF gets some different caliber A-list people to come along. And Gwen Stefani, I think she read Davos Playbook this morning. (laughs) It was clear to her there'd be a lot of pressure around her appearance at a party for a company that does still have clients in Russia. And so she's not coming, uh, a.k.a. personal emergency. We'll leave it to you to decide uh, what was really behind Gwen's decision. And look, there'll be plenty of panels going on. The President of Israel is here. That's going to be closely watched. Um, We've got European Parliament President Metzola. She's on a panel with some European leaders. So look, there's plenty going on. Uh, Christine Lagarde has arrived. We were watching her doing the rounds in the coffee place in the Congress Centre. She's obviously a big name. Um, So look, plenty of different panel discussions and keynote speeches we'll be keeping an eye on. Great. Well, we'll see you all here tomorrow. Listeners, please join us tomorrow as well. Suzanne, Ryan, Jamil, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Jamil, we're going to keep you around again because you've done all of the interviews for today's episode. Who are we going to hear from first? So uh, I managed to grab Alexander Stubb, who's the former prime minister of Finland. Uh, and we uh, a quick walk between the Congress Center and the Media Center, and you could hear the birds chirping, and uh, he gave us his, his views on uh, Russia and the current conflict. So here I am with uh, former... Finnish Prime Minister Alexander Stubb. It's uh, wonderful to see you, sir. You're a fixture of this event and and several others around the world. Can I ask you, yesterday uh, you did an amazing panel on Russia. I heard very good uh, uh, reviews of it. Tell me a bit about what, uh, how you see. I mean, Finland is obviously in a very specific position versus Russia. And so what are your thoughts? Well, obviously, 
for a country like Finland and actually the rest of Europe, the situation is quite delicate. We're seeing a completely divided Europe, a fundamentally isolated Russia, which is aggressive, revisionist, imperialist and authoritarian. And in that sense, I see it very much as a reverse 1989 moment that we're living in and with all of its ramifications, including actually Finnish NATO membership, which... Could you, you know, imagine that a few years no, ago when you no. were prime minister? Was there ever even on the No, cards? I mean, I, I've been an advocate of Finnish NATO membership for the better part of 30 years, but always in a, in a very distinct Hopeful. minority. <laughs> yeah, but I kind of lost hope, uh, you know, somewhere around 2014. I mean, huh. I mediated peace as foreign minister in Georgia in 2008. I gave a speech to... Uh, Finnish ambassadors advocating a rejuvenation of a discussion on NATO uh, membership for Finland got a heavy-duty pushback. But it was really nice to see the consensual way in which the decision then was taken. Now we have 80% of the population in favor and 188 MPs voting in favor of NATO membership, whereas before we would have had perhaps barely 50 amazing. So Putin is the great uh, defender of NATO. He's the great builder yeah, of NATO. Yeah, I mean, you know, without any schadenfreunde, uh, I guess one could say that this enlargement is Putin's enlargements. You, yeah. know? you know, Finland and Sweden would never have joined. And the sequence was quite simple. So Putin attacks, Finnish public opinion changes, Finnish, uh, Swedish public opinion changes, Finnish political leadership changes. Swedish political leadership changes, and then we join together. So that, that's the sequence. Do you think that part of the problem is he just doesn't understand democracy because he hasn't lived in one for well, ever? Or what's the, he doesn't like democracy. I mean, you know, a lot of people say that this was about NATO enlargement. No, it wasn't. It was about values and liberal democracy. I mean, he's a conservative authoritarian. He thinks we in the West are decadent. You know, he believes in hierarchical decision-making structures and limiting freedoms. Uh, and obviously, he's the authoritarian leader of a of a petro economy, former, former empire. Yeah, yeah. No, former empire certainly. This, so this was kind of the last gasp, uh, and uh, the rest is history. Do you worry about this split? that's maybe developing uh, sort of blocks forming China and Russia versus the no, democracies? No, no, I think that's a simplification. Oh. Uh, it's it's not going to be the liberal world order versus the authoritarian world order. It's much more complex than that. I think we're going to have a lot of flexible alliances. At the same time, I, I should add that this is probably the end of uh, an era of the West as well, that, that you know, if we want to work for a rules-based order, it's not going to be necessarily us setting the rules anymore. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. I spoke to Bill Browder, who's the author of one of my favorite books on Russia, Red Notice, about his experience with the Russian state and having his lawyer arrested and eventually killed in prison. He's written a new book called Freezing Order, and I grabbed him in the Congress Center today. So I'm here in the Congress Center with Bill Browder, who's the author of a new book called Freezing Order, all about Vladimir Putin's kleptocracy. Bill, you, you also wrote well, one of my favorite books, uh, Red Notice. You lived through an extraordinary time in Russia, doing business in Russia as the, at the time. I think you claimed to be the biggest foreign investor in Russia in the late 90s at the time. And I mean, you've been warning about Putin's Russia, about Russia for for decades, frankly. And uh, do you feel vindicated now by, by the world waking up to 
Russia's uh, <laughs> evil. I don't want to say evil. I'm a journalist. Uh, you, you can say evil. I mean, it, I think it's. Um, I think you'd I, say I, it, I, 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 I've, I've been saying evil for ten years. Yeah. You know, I, I've been running around here for forever, trying to explain to people that Putin is a criminal, that he's a killer, and he's a killer with all the tools of a sovereign state, and he needs to be contained because if he isn't contained, then he will. Um, do terrible damage. What does that look like? Containment in the Cold War sense, containment in terms of give everyone weapons, you know, give Ukraine loads more weapons? Or Well, well this is before Ukraine, I was mm. telling containment. Yeah. Containment is, is um, creating consequences for evil actions. Mm. You know, when he invaded Georgia, there was no consequences. When, um, when he shot down MH17, there was no consequences. When he hacked the U.S. election, there was no consequences. And so I was always arguing that there need to be consequences because everybody... When they make decisions, whether it's Putin or anyone else, they look at the rewards of their decision and they look at the costs or the risks. And Putin was convinced by our, our uh, not mine, because I was saying, but the Western, this Western commitment to appeasement. Mm. <clears throat> and um, I had seen something different in Putin because I was a, a victim and I, I got to see up close and personal how... how terrible he was. And everybody who I would try to explain this to here in Davos and other places, they would say, yeah, yeah, you know, looking at me like, I, you know, I like you, Bill. You seem like a good guy, but, you know, you, you obviously got issues, but you know, I won't hold that against you. We can still be friends, but I'm going to just continue to do business with Russia. So I'm just really interested on a personal level. Are you being treated differently this time at, at Davos? Are you, do you, can you feel that sort of oh my God, it's vindication totally, it's, and people it's, like it's, slapping on the back? and like, it's, it's, it's totally different because everybody who is sort of, you know, there were people who totally ignored me, totally avoided me. And now they're it's like, yes, they, yes. They're again talking yeah. about Russia. No, but, now, but, but now, now they're like, oh, yes, yes, of course. You know, they, they, I was with you all along. Yeah, right, exactly. And so um, I, I hold it against some people. I hold it against the leaders, the people who should have known better, you know, the prime ministers and presidents. I don't necessarily hold it against the business people. These people are just trying to do business and, and doing the best they can. But, um, you know, now it's very interesting. Now, almost every business... You're invited to every party at Davos. I'm, I'm invited to every party in Davos, but, but, and they're all you know, taking their money out. They're all stopping doing business, and, and it's too late now, but at least we're finally waking up to the evil of Putin. So on, a, on a, another slightly personal note, you, know, you, you had a red notice issue. That was the name of the book, the red notice on Interpol by Russia. And, and I know you've had some issues in some countries where you've crossed borders and you've been pulled aside because of Russia's, you know, abuse of the Interpol system. Are you, on a, again, on personal, are you more worried for your safety now or are you less worried because Putin's got other things to worry about? Well, I'm less worried on an official basis. So the, the Interpol and stuff like that, nobody is going to cooperate with Russia on a legal basis. They're not going to, you know, and I was actually re detained here in Switzerland in 2017. That's right, I remember. And, and uh, then I was arrested in Madrid. That's not going to happen anymore in Europe. So the, what, what I call, you know, lawfare, the legal, you know, using law to try to get me is not going to happen going forward. But using illegal means is absolutely within their capacity and, and um, there's no longer any restraint. If they were worried about getting into trouble in the past, worried about getting um, sanctioned or whatever, now they don't have to worry about that because they're already sanctioned. And so uh, whatever, there's not going to be any restraint in the future. And so I think I've got different things to worry about, probably more things to worry about um, now than I did before. Well, I hope you look after yourself, Bill. And it's really great to talk to you. Thank you. 
Now we're gonna take a quick break and be back with our leading economics experts. Stay with us. And now a message from Cisco. Cisco's purpose is to power an inclusive future for all. An inclusive future isn't possible without a livable planet. Together, we must focus on what makes the most significant impact on the environment, addressing climate change, driving a circular economy, and being responsible stewards of the planet's limited resources. Cisco enables customers to reduce their own environmental footprints using technology and supports innovators to develop solutions that respond to the consequences of a changing climate. Sustainability and climate change are intertwined with many of the biggest challenges facing the world today. It will take all of us to deliver an inclusive and sustainable future. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Now let's hear from Karen Carniel tambor Co-Chief Investment Officer for Sustainability at Bridgewater Associates. She spoke to Jamil and Suzanne. The investment paradigm has really shifted over the last year or so relative to what we've experienced for about 40 years. It's a pretty monumental shift. We had about 40 years of falling inflation and falling interest rates, supporting all of the assets that most investors hold, most importantly, stocks and bonds. And that sort of reached a limit with what happened in COVID, which is rates were already zero people were suffering, and uh, monetary and fiscal policy were used. Policymakers basically pulled out everything they could, put out all the last stops, and they said, let's not only print a massive amount of money, which they already did coming out of the financial crisis, let's also use fiscal policy to direct it to those who need it. So we'll go, we'll literally send people checks to their house, they'll literally get those checks in their house, and you know, we'll print money to do it, so we won't have to borrow to do it. Guess what? That's a pretty tremendous amount of stimulus to put into the economy. It worked. We got out of COVID extremely successfully, especially in the United States. And now a lot of people end up with a lot of money relative to what they had before. Honestly, especially people at you know the bottom 40, 60 percent of the economy. They got checks. They got a lot of support. A lot of the government support went there. And we started kind of running out of the ability to produce the things that we need. 
demand just aren't outstripping supply. And so now we've had this tremendous shift from a world of excess for 40 years, constantly falling rates, constantly falling inflation, to we want to buy a lot more things than we can make. We want to buy them a lot faster than we can make them. There's just shortages everywhere that are now being, you know, kind of made up with an inventory cycle. And, uh, and strong for the layman, that means rising prices. Yes, that means that people are experiencing rising prices. And I'd say there were kind of two phases. Phase one, everybody had a check. And so the prices of everything were sort of rising because everyone was spending on everything, including, you know, whether it's crypto, tech stocks, things they wanted, everyone was spending, price of everything was rising, and wages were rising at the same time. We actually saw the biggest rise in wages for lower income people relative to kind of upper income people that we've seen in many, many years. Now we're in phase two, which is a lot more painful, which is a lot of the rise in price is coming from things like energy and food. That's a lot more painful because first it's exogenous. You know, it's happening because of the war in Ukraine that's stopping the supply of those things. And that hits poor people a lot more. It's a lot more regressive. So now you have this regressive kind of inflation where it's not sort of a tide that lifts all boats and everyone's getting higher prices on everything at the same time. But poor people are getting prices rising a lot faster than their wages are going to rise. And that's why you see the shift to every incumbent political leader in the world is struggling with what to do with this rising inflation is focused on food and energy. That's why Biden's number one issue. Do you see a big distinction between how the, say, the European policymakers, the ECB, have reacted to this and the US situation? And are we comparing like, like, like? You know, the Europeans, for them, this war hits a lot closer to home. They are experiencing more pain and suffering than the Americans are for the simple reason that they're actually reliant on Russian energy and they realize they need to cut that out. They don't want to be sending billions of dollars to the Russians. So it's much more painful. They need to actually stop their economy. It's not just higher energy prices. It's just less energy to fuel the economy. They need to slow it. That's what's called stagflation. Growth slows and inflation rises. At the same time, they're both a lot more willing to withstand it because they don't want war in their own homes. It feels close to home in a way it doesn't for Americans. And number two, they've been a lot more willing to do long-term planning as a result. So they're saying, okay, wait, if we can't have Russian energy and we don't really want coal because there's a very strong political consensus against climate change, let's redouble and triple and quadruple our efforts to try to get green energy, try to get our path right over a 20-year period. What's happening in the U.S. is very different. War doesn't feel close to home, and we don't seem anywhere close to kind of resolving our inability to get through political impasse. And so we have energy shortages and higher energy prices without having that political consensus about what we do about it. And we've created this terrible situation of just total uncertainty. Energy producers are kind of stuck between, well, I don't want to produce more because I think I'll get taxed, but I'm not sure. And it's hard for us to get sort of anything done in terms of relieving the energy shortage. Even the greenest things struggle to kind of get infrastructure literally built. And so I think in the U.S. that hasn't yet yielded hasn't yielded as much pain as Europe, but also hasn't yielded as much political consensus and results and coming together and saying, here's how we get through this problem. So do you think we're heading into recession in the US? So this terrible mixture, as you said, stagflation, where you have recession mixed with rising prices, rapidly rising prices, and asset prices also falling, right? You see, you see, so you've got real inflation, consumer inflation with a bear market in equities. And rising interest rates. I mean, what, what's going on? You think recession is coming and what does that look like? I mean, are we back to the 1970s? So the first thing to remember is that the financial economy did way better than the real economy in the many years coming out of the financial crisis. And now we're seeing that in reverse. And it's okay to have the financial economy do a lot worse than the real economy. And I'd expect that to continue. Because if you're the Fed, you don't really want to tighten into a horrible slowing economy. 
but you don't really care that much about crypto blowing up. You know, this is not a huge problem for you if it doesn't affect people that directly. It's a small amount of their wealth and so on and so forth. So the financial economy is doing a lot worse than the real economy. That said, the real economy is slowing a lot because of higher energy prices, weaker markets, and the Fed keeps tightening. Interest rates are going to keep rising. Um, at this point, we're not yet at a recession point. But part of that is because I don't think the Fed has tightened all they'll need to tighten. And so much, yeah. I think markets are kind of hoping for this amazing, almost magical scenario where the Fed doesn't tighten all that much, and yet inflation slows just thanks to that little amount of tightening, enough, yeah. and there's no recession. That's pretty hard to do when you look at the past. Anytime you had inflation doing what it's doing today and running at this pace, you kind of need to engineer a recession in order to move us past it. So it's hard for me to believe in the next couple of years we will avoid it. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. It was uh, very enlightening and very helpful. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now we're going to hear from David Rubenstein, co-founder of Carlyle Group, the big giant private equity fund. Uh, we were sitting in the Congress Center on the sidelines. Coming to Davos, I would have thought the big issue was Ukraine and Russia, and obviously uh, Zelensky has given a virtual address here, uh, and people are still talking about that. But the big topic, honestly, is not so much Ukraine, Russia, as important as that is. It's is the U.S. going into a recession? Is Europe going into a recession? Is the economic uh, and stock market meltdown we've seen recently uh, here to stay? And, and how are we going to get out of this mess? That's basically what people are more focused on. What are your thoughts on that? Do you, you think we're going to recession? Stagflation when, when is coming? When I was uh, in the government under President Carter, I was told not to use the R word. So uh, I don't like to use the R word. Uh, our inflation advisor then said, rather than use the R word, he called anything like that a banana. He would say, uh, we might be going to a banana because he knew reporters wouldn't put that in the headline. So I won't say we're in a banana, but I would say that clearly uh, we have uh, the markings of of an economic slowdown that's unlike anything we've seen in quite a while. And the stock market it reflects that. And uh, interest rates are in an un unusual situation. We're increasing interest rates as the economy is slowing down. So it produces classic stagflation. Yeah. Where do you think we're headed with inflation? Do you think the central banks have been behind the curve? Or as someone said to me, maybe this is exactly what they want. They want to inflate their way out of some of the debt that has built up over the last few years. That would be more forward-thinking impression than I think the central bank deserves credit for. I don't think they wanted to basically inflate our way out of the debt, although the debt is staggering, $31 trillion. No, I think the Fed, as it said, and the chairman of the Fed used to work at Carlisle, so I'd known him for quite some time, he said that they basically missed the boat, more or less. They, they miscalculated how high inflation was going to be, and uh, now they're trying to correct for that. But as you increase interest rates as much as they're going to do and the economy is slowing down, you could be you know, having a bad combination. So I don't think anybody has a way out of this right now. And remember, economies have recessions every seven years or so anyway on average. So it's not unusual uh, to have some slowdown. Now, we've had one in COVID, but that was COVID-related. We really haven't had anything as severe as what that we had in the Great Recession for quite some time. And I don't think this will be that severe, but it's, it could be a slowdown of some consequence. Mm. And uh, what about markets? They're really they've been doing pretty badly uh, the last little while. What's your what's your sense of the where? markets uh, are always due for a correction? And mm. now we are in, I guess, a bear market because the stock market's down by twenty percent in the U.S. I think it'll bounce back. I think uh, it's not 
I, I don't see it staying down that long. I think it's, it's a technical bear market, but I think it's probably going to bounce back. So I'm not that worried about it, though. Obviously, I wish the prices were higher, but for people like us, we can buy things more cheaply, so exactly. it has that advantage. Yeah, I was going to say, do you see, you know, private equity is famous for being somewhat counter-cyclical. When, when things are bad, there are distressed assets to be picked up. Where are you looking? Well, generally, uh, we think the U.S. is still an attractive place to buy. It's obviously harder to do things in China now. India has been more attractive of late uh, than China. I do think Europe has some appeal as well. Um, technology prices are way down, so probably you can buy things uh, more cheaply. I have a new book coming out about great investors. I've interviewed the best investors in the United States over the last couple of years, and I kind of put together what they have said it makes a great investor and my observation of it and basically it's going against the conventional wisdom so the conventional wisdom now is to be nervous and be careful because prices are down it might go further but i think great investors now are probably thinking now is the time to buy when everyone's fearful get greedy it's the uh, the buffett the buffett quote yeah. Um, as a general rule, when I ask investors what is the biggest mistake that investors historically make, it's when markets go down, they sell, and markets going up, they buy. And it should be the opposite. Markets are down now. You know, Netflix is 25% of its price before. It's still a very good company, 250 million subscribers or something like that. So I would say probably I'm not an expert in that company, but things like that have gone down so much in value, it seems like it may have been oversold. Yeah. What do you think about crypto? This place, I was walking down the promenade uh, last night and I saw how many of the sort of shop fronts have taken over by crypto. And then I looked at what crypto has done over the last month or so and I thought maybe this is sort of a month, a month late. Those, those be... leases might have been taken a exactly. few months ago. A couple but, of months ago. Uh, my own view is that people around the world are, are nervous now about the prices of crypto. On the other hand, what we saw happen to the Russian oligarchs' wealth was that it was visible and it can be taken away by governments. I think a lot of very wealthy people are going to say, well, maybe I should have something in, something that nobody can take away, nobody knows I have, it's not visible, and so I'll put something of my net worth in it just in case there's a rainy day or somebody comes after me. So I think it's not going to go away. Mm. Now, I recognize all the challenges of crypto, and I'm not saying that crypto is something I would buy. I don't own it. I do own some companies or invested in companies that have serviced the industry. Mm. I think the industry is not going away. I think a lot of people who are younger see it as an alternative to the kind of uh, devalued currencies that they see that the governments are putting out. So I'm not saying it's dead yet. And remember, uh, crypto has been written off before, too. And so it right. came back. So you would more invest in the companies selling the shovels for the crypto well, there gold there are 18,000 cryptocurrencies, the, so who can pick which one is going to be the best? And even right, though Bitcoin rather than is the gold not, itself, yes. rather than the prospecting. Sell the shovels to the people That's the correct. Uh, the industry will probably be around for quite some time. Mm. And ultimately, uh, I think we'll go to... A, government digital currencies as well, which is not crypto, but I think things that reduce blockchain technology are going to be really invaluable, and therefore understanding blockchain technology and investing in things that use it, I think is going to be a good thing. Thanks again to Jamil for those. And that's all the time we have on this special edition of Davos Confidential. Remember that you can get more of our Davos coverage by subscribing to our Davos playbook, which you can find at politico.eu. And if you haven't already, we encourage you to subscribe to our EU Confidential podcast so that you get all of our episodes directly into your feed. I'm Sarah Wheaton in Davos. Thanks this week to James Rand. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. And to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, who's sitting right here next to me in Davos with the crew. And thanks to you for listening.